Heavenly Father, we come tonight and we thank you for this opportunity uh, to gather and it, um, we do joke about this text and yet there is such great power in the, the story and what it relates to us and we just pray that we would be open to hear um, what, it, what it speaks to us and how you desire to speak to us through this text and the role that you desire for us to play in the advancement of your kingdom in the place that you have planted us for this season. So be with our time tonight, be with our discussions. Holy Spirit, uh, help us to, to be open to your movement in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are in uh, Nehemiah chapter 3. Um, last week, I hope you feel like you got... Uh, you got like an Ezra, like a Cliff's Notes of Ezra, and a little bit, uh, and the rest of Nehemiah chapter 2, so that was kind of fun. Um, we might do some jumping around, just, uh, it's, it's interesting to see where these places come back up um, in, the, in Scripture, in other places, and so many people have asked, um, am I going to read this? I'm not. Um, because Tom wants us to be consistent. When I took Hebrew in seminary, it was, um, it was a new style of teaching Hebrew, and so it was a conversational approach. Um, so we had to speak Hebrew a lot, which is kind of ironic, to speak a dead language. Um, but for, so our, teach, our professor would, would, he'd had all these like little uh, trinkets and toys and, like, for instance, he would say, kos. And then he would pick it up and he'd say, ha kos. And then he would fill it with um, water. And then he would say, ha kos mime. And then you would, you would know that, now you all know Hebrew. Ha kos mime is a cup of water. And then you say, tenili ha kos mime. Give me the cup of water. Isn't that fun? Speaking Hebrew is so much fun. Then you pick up a rock, Evan. Then you pick up a horse, Seuss. Then you pick up a big horse, Seuss Gadol. Big horse, Seuss Gadol. And then you say, Seuss, Seuss, Seussim. Horses, Seussim. Has my stalling gotten us enough more people? Still see we have some maps. So all that to say, not that I couldn't read it, but we're going to have Max read it for us. Nehemiah chapter 3. Nehemiah 3. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers and priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him the men of Jericho built, and next to them Zakur, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Ahasenaah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them Meshullam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezebel, repaired. And next to them Zadok, the son of Bana, repaired. And next to them the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Jehoiada, the son of Peseah, and Meshullam, the son of Pesadeiah, repaired the gate of Yeshanah. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah the Gibeonite, and Jadon 
the Maranothite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them Uziel, the son of Harhiah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them Rephaiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them Jediah, the son of Haramath, repaired opposite his house. And next to him Hatash, the son of Hashabaneah, repaired. Malchijah, the son of Harim, and Hashab, the son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. Next to him Shalom, the son of Elohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malchijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hacherim, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kol Hose, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shalah of the king's garden as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah the son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Beth Zur, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired. Reham the son of Bani, next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of half the district of Kilah, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired. Bavai, the son of Henadad, ruler of half the district of Kilah. Next to him, Azair, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashab repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Masaiah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Benuai, the son of Henadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Palal, the son of Uzai, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Pedaiah, the son of Parash, and the temple servants living on Ophel repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Amer, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. After him, Meshalem, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the muster gate, and to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. Woohoo!
Part of uh, why we want to listen to this in its entirety is the, the literary structure gives us a lot of sense of what's actually going on. You know, it's, this is not a complete exhaustive list of all the people that helped, but we, we definitely get the picture of, and this person worked with this person and did this, and this person worked with this person and did this, and this person worked with this person and then, did, and then he did this. Um, yeah, as you can see from the map, um, or the picture, or however you want to say that, if you need one of these, there's more back on the table. Um, the total distance of the wall is approximately two and a half miles long. It's approximately 40 feet tall and averaging about eight feet in width. So uh, two and a half miles around, 40 feet, which if you stand out and can see the peak of this roof, that's about 40 feet tall and you know, eight feet uh, in width. The history of the wall, obviously David, when he came in, um, as king, and, and they start to establish Jerusalem as kind of the, the center. He starts building the wall. Solomon um, adds to the wall. And then if we flip to Second Chronicles, um, chapter 35, 32, sorry, it's interesting, right? Because as we've been going through the book of Isaiah, we, we just got done as we finished book one, uh, dealing with Sennacherib and that uh, assault, we saw the importance of the wall. If they wouldn't have had the wall, they would have never had an opportunity to withstand the onslaught um, of Sennacherib. And so, uh, just looking at the first part of 32, after these things and these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and camped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them for himself. And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and intended to fight against Jerusalem, he planned with his officers and his mighty men to stop the water of the springs that were outside the city, and they helped him. A great many people were gathered, and they stopped all the springs and the brook that flowed through the land, saying, Why should the king of Assyria come and find much water? He set to work resolutely and built up all the wall that was broken down and raised towers upon it, and outside it he built another wall, and he strengthened uh, the Milo in the city of David. He also made weapons and shields in abundance. So we see the history of this wall, and it's so interesting that uh, Hezekiah is rebuilding the wall before it eventually is then taken out. And so Hezekiah, when, or, uh, Nehemiah, when he comes back to, to the city, and he sees, he's like, one of the first things we need to do is rebuild the wall, because the wall holds all of this importance. Now, we know that that this isn't chronological. So we get this picture, right? Last week, Nehemiah, ninja, cover of darkness, clippity-clop around checking out the wall, and then he's like, and the next morning, Nehemiah wakes up, rallies the troops, and they rebuild the wall. Wow, that was amazing. Not quite. Uh, but as he puts together uh, this text... He wants to relay the importance of the wall and the success that they had. So as we look at this text, we're going to break down who each person was. We're not. <laughs> You're all like, uh, could have stayed home. Um, still light out. Maybe I could leave now. 
get a phone call. Uh, we're not. We're going to look at, though, um, the importance of the wall, what is uh, being communicated, and so on and so forth. So um, in, the, in his book, The Tipping Point, Ma- Malcolm Gladwell talks about three types of people if you want to get something to tip. And so one of those is this, uh, a person who's a connector. And Hezek, or Nehemiah was a connector. He knew people, and he could connect people and draw people together. Notice, at no point is Nehemiah mentioned in building anything. So, it wasn't like, and Nehemiah helped in this section, and Nehemiah helped in this section, and Nehemiah helped in this section. No, Nehemiah is the... He's the general contractor who has the contacts, who has the resources to get people fired up around this project. And so he has clear giftings to get people in. You know those type of people, right? Like if you are looking to make a connection with somebody, you're like, oh, I'll call so-and-so because surely they'll know who that person is. Like, I got a text today from a friend who said, hey, what was that one guy's name that we played Liar's Dice with at New Year's two years ago? <laughs> and I was like, his name's Nathan. Okay, thanks. Good to know. Good to know. To, to determine if you're a connector, the test is to go through a phone book and go by last name and tick off how many last names of those people that you know. So in our case, it'd be like Anderson with an E, 27. I know 27 Andersons. Anderson with an O, I know 50 of those. That's how you determine if you're a connector. Uh, So the interesting thing, though, right, is in verse 5 right away, we say, uh, we see, and next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. So this wasn't like everybody was pitching in. There were people that were resistant to pitching in because they didn't think it was of that much importance. Likewise, when we get into uh, chapter 4 of next week, there isn't just people that are like, I'm not interested in helping. There's people that are actually opposing um, the work that they are doing. So what, what we have here is this psychological phenomenon that draws people together around a particular crisis. You remember um, three, four years ago when the, st- the first storm hit and you met people that were your neighbors that you've lived by for 10 years that you've never met? Anybody else have that experience? I pulled into church, <laughs> uh, church, church uh parking lot and I see this guy and I'm like who is this guy this guy's out there with the chainsaw I'm like clearly you know the the pessimist in me is like he's cutting up our trees and then he's going to try and bill us I'm just being honest and then I was like ah sir hi how's it going I've never never seen you before in my life he's like well we come here like, e. We just started coming here. Okay, that makes me feel a little bit better. Uh, and he's like, my wife drove by and she's like, you better get to the church because they got a lot of trees down. But when we had that storm, people just came together and rallied together and 
you know, we used chainsaws for like two years or three years. And even if you weren't affected, you wanted to get involved to help out your neighbors because that's what you do. It's this community building event. And there is actually this psychological phenomenon around people who experience trauma together. It brings them um, together in closeness. So that is what we have going on here. Nehemiah sees this not only as a, a possibility to get a lot of work done, but he knows that when people work together on a project, they naturally grow closer together. If you've ever been on a mission trip, you immediately have a connection with these people because you're laboring for a common goal. You know, if you serve on a uh, team here at Timberwood, there is this natural camaraderie that takes place because you're serving together. And, and we, we could very we could decide to outsource everything. We could hire a, a cleaning company to come in and clean the building. You know, we could hire somebody to cut the grass. Mark and Dave were like, whoa, okay, whoa, you can take my job away? We could do all of those things and pay for all of these things to be done, but there is such great value in people coming together to make something happen. And we see that here in Nehemiah, and we see that here on a, on a weekly basis. Because when you serve alongside somebody else, cool things happen and you get to know one another. Likewise, we see all of these people, the people that live by the dung gate, aren't going up and working on the sheep gate. You're like, they should go up to the sheep gate and move away from the dung gate. Who wants to live by the dung gate? But each one of them is working in their immediate physical sphere of influence. And that's one of the things, you know, we have small groups that, that form around geographical regions for that exact reason. Because if you live in Baxter... To drive up to Cross Lake, you're like, we live in two different worlds. Sort of. Okay, let me rephrase that. To live in Baxter and drive to Bacchus, to small group, you'd be like, that's so far away. To group around the geographical location that we are placed in. And we see all of these people building right in their own neck of the woods right across from their house. Verse 10. Next to them, Jedidiah, the son of Haramph, repaired opposite his house. And it begs the question, why, why has God placed you in the physical location that he has at the time that he has? And we moved into our house uh, almost eight years ago, and... And it was like, oh, I, I moved into this house because I like this house and I, I like this area. And, and as it's gone on, I've begun to ask myself, did God place me in this house for the people that live on my street? Is it the case that God has placed me at my current residence to reach those who live on my street? 
my neighbor who lives uh, kind of kitty corner from me, he and his wife started coming to Timberwood. And, and I could say, well, that's just because they decided to come to Timberwood. Well, he wouldn't have known about Timberwood if I wouldn't have moved in. Likewise, another neighbor who has since moved, they come to Timberwood because they're like, oh, wait, you, you work at Timberwood? I'm like, yeah, you should come check it out. And first it was like, well, come hear me preach every so often. And then I was like, yeah, we like this place. And the power of proximity to people has such impact. The challenge, though, is that my neighbor right across the street, um, I don't really like him. He wants to hunt on land that I've worked hard on that isn't even my own. (laughs) And I had permission first. (laughs) And every once in a while he'll wander over and I don't really like to talk to him. And over the past three months, the Holy Spirit is like, Eric, I want you to invite him over for dinner. And I'm like, no, I don't want to. I don't want to. Now, thankfully, he's south for a few more months. (laughs) But I know when his vehicle shows back up, I'm going to have to go over and say, hey, why don't you come over for dinner? And Nikki's going to be like, wait, what'd you do? Maybe it's the case that God has placed us in the physical location that we are currently at for a specific reason to impact the people that live in the proximity of us. And these people were in the perfect place for them to assist in the rebuilding of the wall. Now, the cynic says that, of course, they wanted to rebuild the wall because it immediately affected them. Like, if there's a hole in the wall across from your house, you want to fix it. You know, if you live up in Fargo and there is a break in the levee in the Red River, you better get to fixing it right now because we know that it's about to flood. You're like, how did you know it was going to flood? It's Fargo-Moorhead. In the spring, it always floods. And so the cynic says the only reason why they were helping is because it was close to their house and they wanted to protect their house. And that, I don't think that that's true because clearly not everyone participates in the rebuilding. And the interesting thing is he leads off in verse 1 with the high priest, like, The guy at the top is getting dirty, and he's helping out. You know, the very first week that I started at Timberwood was vacation Bible school, and the very first night, John goes and grabs a vacuum, and I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, we got to clean up. I'm like, okay, there you go. Everyone gets involved. Well, most people get involved. All those people that are responding to the call of God on their life are getting involved in this process of rebuilding. And we see some interesting phrases 
especially as it re- uh, relates to uh, the gates. Like in verse 3, it just keeps repeating. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. Again, this is a sign of completion. It wasn't like, you know, uh, they laid some plywood and, and, and fashioned a rope as a door handle. No, they actually completed the project. It was secure and sturdy, and we see that repeated throughout this concept of bolts and bars and everything is in its place. It's interesting, if you flip over to uh, John chapter 5, we see this New Testament reference to uh, the first gate that is mentioned. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, uh, verse 1, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethsaida, which has five uh, roofed colonnades. Uh, In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Why does he start with the Sheep Gate? Well, more than likely, it's because of its position at the north and keeping it secure to the north. But it's interesting to see where these gates appear in other places throughout Scripture. Again, we see this reference to the broad wall. Some believe that was the, uh, the gate that we see Hezekiah reinforcing uh, during the attack by Sennacherib. Um, one thing that sticks out is this reference to the fact that some people actually did more than they uh, had to. We see in um, verse 20, after him Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. And then in verse 24, we see... um, after him, Benui, the son of Henadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. And so it's not just that these people did the minimum. And we had a great joke, uh, a great laugh about this uh, at lunchtime. And as our kids are growing older, it's like, okay, it's your turn to do the laundry and then the child goes downstairs and loads up their clothes, you know, five shirts and one pair of sweatpants in the laundry, does the laundry, and you're like, seriously? Seriously. You disregard, you, you like moved my clothes out of the way so that you could get only your clothes and you were only going to do your clothes. That's how we're going to do this game. After dinner, I wash my plate, my cup. My dishes are done. When are you going to do your dishes? Well, I thought you were going to do the dishes. I did them. You didn't do my dishes? I did my dishes, and that's all that matters. We have this phrase in our house that Nikki has coined. It's not, I'm done with my chores, it's, what else can I help with? 
It works great, husbands and wives, and, and, and kids uh, can learn it too. What else can I help with? So it wasn't like they got their piece of the wall done and they're like, all right, I'm good. You know, it's like if you live in town and, and there's a sidewalk and you shovel your sidewalk like right up to the edge. And you're like, oh, I guess my neighbor needs to shovel his sidewalk. I did my part. These people were like, it's not about me and what I'm supposed to do. It's about us and this collective we that's going on throughout this process. And they have this attitude of the project isn't done until the project is done. And I'm not going to stop working until everyone's project Our project is complete. And they have this passion and this desire to see this wall completed. And one commentator refers to it as this zeal for the work of the Lord. And how this attitude of, hey, what can I do next? It's not, I'm done with my part. I'll be inside, let me know when you're done so then we can hang out. It's, I'm done with my part, now what? Now what? Now what? Now what? And how much our attitude affects the rest of the community. I mean, you look back to verse 5, and the, and the nobles are like, I'm not going to stoop that low. I'm not stacking bricks. I'm important. And that attitude is divisive, and it undercuts the health of the rest of the group. And James MacDonald, I know he's been mired in some controversy, but before the controversy, he wrote this great book called Lord Change My Attitude Before It's Too Late. And he talks about the Israelites when they're in the desert and how their attitude affected their future. And the grumbling that they went through And we see the opposite of that in these few individuals. They're not grumbling, oh, i got to come help so-and-so. It's, hey, what can I do to help, and how can we get this project complete? Because part of what we're looking at in the wall is the importance of the wall. Because we know uh, Ezra 1.1, right, is... This is the fulfillment of the prophecy given to Jeremiah. And and so when they are rebuilding the wall, it is a significant event in the fulfillment of this prophecy and the faithfulness of God in their life. Because if they didn't rebuild the wall, they wouldn't have any confidence that they were going to stay in the place that they were in. It's like if you're ever camping. If you're camping one night and then you're moving on to the next place, you're like, ah, do we really need to get out the tiki torches and the string lights and the refrigerator? (laughs) Some of you are like, camping. But the repairing of the wall is a sign of permanence, of trust in who God is, and the faithfulness of God to get them to this place where they will be able to 
relax and worship. Because the wall serves as a protection for what? For the city, yes, but a lot of these people don't live in the city. So they're coming to the city to build this wall so that the temple will be protected. So that the temple will be protected and also the house of the king will be protected. And the importance of protecting the temple is the importance of protecting the place of worship for God and honoring God through this structure. And they want to do it right and they want to get it to a place where it is secure and supportive. One of the reasons why they're building this wall is to protect the temple and the city from outside pagan influence. You know, if the wall doesn't exist, people can just walk in to and fro willy-nilly throughout the city and they don't have to go in through the gates and there is this chance of outside infection of other pagan gods. And so this project of rebuilding the temple is to honor God by protecting his house of worship and by protecting their religion and their religious practices. And we ask the question, what structures do I have in place to protect my relationship with God? Or do I simply just let whatever come my way come my way? In addition, what makes the people unique? What makes this group of people distinct? They are to be holy unto the Lord. They are to be set apart. And if there are no boundaries or borders around the city, they just blend into the population. If you go to the the Middle East today, we know that this area has been fought over by three distinct religious groups to this day because they want to carve out their peace and say, this peace makes us unique. This is our identity and this is our distinctiveness. And so we need to draw the proverbial line in the sand or it gets a little cumbersome to say, I'm going to build the wall in the desert. It's not really a phrase that that flows off the tongue. To identify myself as a follower of, of Yahweh. And so as we go into this, this passage, we're like, <laughs> you know, I'm not really into houses, not really into building. Why is Nehemiah including this chapter with name after name, place after place in this book about the restoration of the people? And it's all of these things. And, and we can't just see the wall as the wall. The wall is about so much more than just a bunch of rocks stacked on top of each other. Have you ever tried to stack rocks 40 feet high? No, I haven't either. But that takes some serious effort. The last thing that we see is... uh, 
verse 32, and it's interspersed throughout, but, and between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. And we see a few different skilled positions coming together and working on this project. But for the most part, these people are not craftsmen. We didn't call up the bricklayers' union to put this wall together. It was a bunch of people who were passionate about protecting the house of God, restoring their city, restoring their identity, and doing things that they weren't necessarily trained to do. They weren't some accomplished band of builders. There were some some key people. And notice they didn't say, well, this isn't really uh, my realm of of work. You know, I sell sell fabric. I don't build walls. You're like, I don't really do toilets. I don't really clean toilets. Who does, right? I mean, like, no one says, like, that's the top of their resume, like, I'm great at cleaning toilets. It didn't matter their profession. It didn't matter their skill set. What mattered was their passion and their commitment to who God is in their lives and the restoration of these people. And yeah, there's some skilled workers because certainly this takes some significant work. And it takes some skilled work. When we were laying our floor floor in our kitchen after we ripped up the linoleum and, and the subfloor, I had no idea what I was doing. (laughs) And so I called Earl, and I said, Earl, could you come over and help me? And I'd started some things, and I'd set the island in place, and and he and John were just like, really? Like, you've never done this before, have you? No. No, I haven't, but doesn't it look good? Um, Next question. So often we're like, oh, I'm not good at that. I don't have those skills. You know, people say all the time, well, I don't have the gift of hospitality. But it's not about the skill set. Some people have skills in certain areas that, that allow them to shine in certain areas. Certainly the goldsmiths in this instance would have had some great skill for the setting of the gates and, you know, dealing with all of these things. But but it doesn't stop the merchants from, from participating. It doesn't stop the average person from pitching in and saying, what can I do? What do you want me to do? Because again, the wall is about so much more than just putting brick upon brick, rock upon rock. It's about restoring the dignity of the people of God, protecting the temple, and allowing them to get back to this place of worshiping God in this location that is sacred to them. And yeah, not everyone pitched in. But the vast majority of the people said, what can I do? It's the old adage of making mistakes at 100 miles an hour. They weren't hesitant. They weren't tentative. They were just like, what do we need to do? And let's make that happen. 
So now we've got some great questions. You're like, how are we going to come up with questions about this? So um, what's your expertise on um, the sheep gate? Right? I mean, many of you, when I was listening to Nehemiah, I was like, oh man, Tom's going to have a a hard time teaching on chapter (laughs) 3. And he's like, oh, by the way, I'm going to be gone for uh, uh, March 11th. Can you teach? Yeah, sure, sounds good. It's chapter 3. No! (laughs) And it's fascinating because as I have read this and digested it and worked through it, it's been an amazing process of understanding how Oftentimes, God speaks to us in the true meaning of the text beyond its face value of uh, and Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. I mean, right? How often do we come to the text and we're like, uh, this, let's just skip over this part. And yet, when we dig in, the Holy Spirit has a way of speaking to us. And we see this community coming together responding to the place that God has them physically and being passionate about the restoration of the things of God and the advancement of the kingdom of God literally in front of their house. So go to your groups. I think you got some great questions to discuss.